1971, girls begin to disappear from the island of Galveston, Texas. Some of their bodies would be discovered days, months, or even years later in the surrounding bayous and tall grass, while others we still search for. What follows was three decades of terrors for the young women of South Texas in the area that would become known as the Texas Killing Fields. Was one serial killer preying on these idyllic beach communities in small coastal towns, or a multiple madmen stalking these southern bells? Was it only coincidence that so many were murdered and missing from here? Are these cases unsolvable? Do we just give up? Has time run out, or is it time to act and get some answers? Are the answers hiding in a police evidence box, washing away in the murky waters of the bayous, or can they be found in the ravings of a madman's letters? Will this be his final revenge? Hi, I'm Gretchen. And I'm Morgan. And we're two friends that met at work and bonded over true crime and our passion for it. And we're both just really astonished that we're sitting right in the middle of what is considered the Texas Killing Fields. So Gretchen, what do you think the Texas Killing Fields are? Well, it depends. Lots of things that you read says that it's just the 25-acre plot on Calder Road. But really, it's larger than that. It's the I-45 corridor from Houston to Galveston. It includes all the small towns in that area. Alvin, Santa Fe. Dickinson, you have League City, you know, Webster. Right, I mean, League City's where we work, and we just found it amazing to find out that we were just a mile from Calder Field. Yeah, that, that was pretty shocking when we really did discover that it's right there. I mean... When we went out there to visit, you know, the girls, it took us, what, five minutes maybe? I mean, there was no time at all. We were just right there. Right. And talking to friends at work, you find out how many of them grew up in that time period and were touched by this. And a lot. Just, you know, as we're talking, as they actually hear us and they're like, you're still talking about this? And it's always something I think we're going to talk about because it is sort of our passion and something that we feel so strongly about, but we have a coworker whose dad was there that night. We have, you know, another coworker that says to this day, he's still afraid to walk around after a certain time of night. And they grew up in that area and they're in their, you know, early twenties. Yeah. Somebody, some of them even older. Mm -hmm. So I think what's important to note here is they, we don't want to get closed minded about the area or what victims belong as included as victims of the Texas killing fields. Because if you get into that, you start to not look at how these cases may tie together. And some of these cases may tie farther up in Houston. People had the ability to travel the I-45 corridor, even though it was a smaller highway at the time. Now it's expanded quite a bit or the size of it expanded quite a bit but people were using that to travel from houston you know all across the texas area and so you can't get very close-minded to say that the victims were just from here or that the vic the perpetrator or the suspects have to be just from here i think we have to look broader so as we go along and start to talk about the victims and the suspects we're going to open that up a little bit more right and i i think that was another thing that was pretty eye-opening to me as we've 
been on our journey and doing our research is just the fact that you're like, I found another person up here in Pasadena or over here in Baytown. And it's, it's just so, it's, it's mind boggling. Almost. It's just unbelievable sometimes to me that it's just so broad, I guess. And, and yet when you say that it's still a very small area compared to how big Houston can be. Yeah, definitely. What doesn't seem to be in doubt is the timing. So it looks like the timing of this act, a large amount of activity of girls either being murdered or missing from this area seems to be from the 1970s to the late 1990s or early 2000s. Right. And I think another thing to note here is that they are found near bodies of water. You know, whether it's, you know, a bayou, a bay, or, you know, just even, you know, the dike, for instance. So um, we, we can't lose touch on that either. And maybe, you know, they were using the bodies of water to hopefully, you know, maybe not, or hopefully get rid of some evidence maybe in what they've done. I definitely think that a lot of that use of the bodies of water was to get rid of evidence, but also, you know, you have this area where not only, you know, you have the water and the animal activity and the predators, you know, who can uh, destroy a body, but you have the humidity and um, all of those other factors that are out there in Texas that make this very, very difficult. And probably is the reason that so many of these women are never found. So Gretchen, I know we started with originally what, maybe 20 victims. What, how many do you think we have now? Well, at this point, we're looking at a timeline that has 35 victims on it. And as we've looked a little bit farther and expanded it out, as we've looked at some of these suspects, we're probably up to about 50 victims that we're, we're looking at at this time. Right. And I know sometimes when we get together to work um, on our podcast, I'm like, who are we adding today? Right. That's sometimes one of the very first things that I ask you, who are we adding today? Who's going up there? And it's, it seems to always be somebody, even, even if we can't, um, necessarily tie them in, it's because a suspect has come up where their name was mentioned. And then when you look at maybe how they were, you know, victimized, then we're like, Oh, it sounds like this one. Right. And so that's, that always amazes me too that we just seem to always have somebody else to add and it just gets sad it just does and i think as we go along and maybe people listen to us that we'll probably get contacted by people who will say to us have you looked at this case or have mm -hmm. you looked at that case for us we believe that doing this podcast may bring some sort of well, our hope would be some sort of resolution to these cases, but at least maybe get them looked at again to get people not to forget that these cases are out there and they're unsolved. Right. And when people do ask us too, like, what, what are you hoping to get out of this podcast? And I think our main goal is to tell the stories of the victims to hopefully bring some answers to these families because really they're victims too. You know, they're left without the answers or knowing what's happened to their loved one or there's all the speculation and, and maybe just get that, that new light shed on them. 
Absolutely. We are going to do our very, very best to stay victim focused in this podcast. Right. And so I know one thing that we wanted to touch on um, in our very first episode here is what is DNA doing? What, what are we doing with DNA now? DNA is just changing things by leaps and bounds for so many of these families. We're being able to have victims that were Jane Doe's for so long, some of them 20 to 30 years, be now identified and families be able to know at least what happened to their loved one. But I think DNA also is starting to solve these cases. And I, without a doubt, believe that there is DNA out there in these cases that is still ready and available to be looked at and can possibly solve these cases. The other thing that's coming along with DNA is genetic genealogy, which is fascinating to think that genetic genealogy could solve the Golden State Killer case. But I genetic genealogy can solve these cases too. You know, and the hope is that through that, we will start to see some differences be made. But DNA already has solved from what we are looking at, at least two of these cases. Right. And I think for a long time, um, you know, what DNA testing was in the 70s wasn't in our favor, wouldn't be in our favor. But... What? Okay, Gretchen, I know you're looking at me like, what are you talking about, right? And I'm not talking about DNA testing in the 70s. You know, blood typing, what they could, I guess, test. But DNA is in our favor now, especially with genealogy testing and different things like that. And even though with some of these victims, you know, their parents have passed on, but they're able to do this testing with you know, second aunts, second cousins, what, you know, stuff like that. So it's pretty amazing how far we've come with that. And so hopefully if we can, you know, get into what evidence is there, things could be tested. I absolutely think things could be tested. I know that things were just tested in the last couple of years. And with, you know, we're seeing some, um, some information come out there now. So who knows in the next year and maybe possibly this podcast will have some law enforcement looking back at these cases and looking at some of this evidence and saying, Oh, we could test this. So hopefully maybe that would happen. But I think for today, let's talk about where it begins. Okay. Colette Wilson is our first documented um, victim. She went missing from Alvin, Texas in the summer um, on June 17th of 1971. So Gretchen, who is Colette Wilson? Colette Wilson was a happy-go-lucky 13-year-old girl. She was extremely excited to be going to band camp that year. Colette played the clarinet enjoyed playing with her brothers and sisters. The problem was that Colette's mom had 10 children at home, Colette being being 13 and nine of those children being younger than her. And so it was difficult for Colette's mom to make the drive every day 
to Dulles High School in Sugarland to drop her off for band camp and then pick her up a few hours later. So her band leader, Charlie Mays, stepped in and offered her to meet her at the corner of Highway 6 and County Road 99. Colette lived off of that narrow gravel road, and so this was convenient for her mom to bring her to the end of the road, meet the band director, and then she would go to band camp, and then he would drop her off in the afternoon, and Colette's mom would pick her up and take her home. So on the... On Thursday, June 17th, Charlie Mays, the band leader, dropped her off there on the corner of Highway 6. And Colette's mom arrived a few minutes later. And Colette wasn't there. She did notice that there was a dark, older model sedan that drove off as she was arriving. And she never saw who the driver was. She did think that there was possibly a woman or a child in the back seat. She waited there for a few minutes and her daughter never arrived. And she, she thought because she was running late, she had had conversations with Colette that said, hey, if I'm running late or if you get impatient and I don't arrive, go to your nearby friend's house and wait for me there. You know, kind of that emergency that you make with your child to say, hey, you know, something may happen. I may get a flat tire. Or I may be running late, you know. And uh, so that when she wasn't there, her mom just assumed that she had gone to the friend's house. So they went to the friend's house. She wasn't at the friend's house. They used the phone to call other friends and to see, you know, what had happened to Colette. And she wasn't at any of her friend's house. So they went back to the um, road there to Highway 6 and still noticed that she wasn't there. That's when fear really set in and they started to panic a little bit. So Colette's mom drove home. She called her husband and said, you know, I can't find Colette. And um, they called law enforcement and said, you know, their daughter was missing. Law enforcement said, oh, she's probably just run away. Um, but Colette's parents knew that she wouldn't run away, that there was no reason for her to run away. And so they got the neighbors involved. Neighbors started helping search. Um, and there was no sign of her. And I think what's kind of important to bring up just as reference, you're talking a time with no cell phones, you know. Um, so when you're talking about going to use the phone, they're driving all the way back to use a phone to call law enforcement or to the neighbor's house, right? And there's not that immediate, you know, communication like we would have now. So if I'm running late, I can pick up the phone and call my kids. Hey, stay right there. I'm on my way, right? Don't move. You didn't have that then. So I think that's why, you know, you set up with your neighbors and friends who have kind of that safe place. Um, and I think what's important too here is the fact that they actually set up that initial search because the cops were treating her as a runaway. Yeah, I think um, it took, uh, I think it was when she didn't show back up that night that finally law enforcement started to think, okay, maybe we've got something going on here. Um, I know that it was two days later that law enforcement did close off the road, started to do a canvas and got helicopters involved. But neighbors and friends really started that initial search. And what's sad about that is one of the neighbors went there to the corner of Highway 6 and started to look around and claims that he found some unemployment papers. Right, yes. And, you know, the cops toss it. 
they don't even see it as relevant. They think it's garbage. Yeah. And they that's... toss it. And that amazes me, too. You know, and I just always kind of wondered, you know, with the whole story about the cops, you know, throwing it away. Did they throw it away or is it possibly buried in a file somewhere that somebody hasn't come across? Um could they go back and look at that? Is there a possibility of looking at some of these suspects and seeing if maybe there was some tie to possible papers that would have flown out of the car at that point? It's just, it's such a missing piece of that we don't have. It is. And, you know, when we did our research and discovered that part, you know, I look at you and I'm like, if I had the ability to search in a database what the cops would have, I would just pop it in there. Why not? You know, and, and just the fact that it was sort of just discarded or not seen as important because we don't really know if it's there or not there. But that amazes me, I think, because I'm nosy and I would just be like, oh, this could be a piece. Um, and why was it not considered, I think, is something that I question. Yeah, I definitely, you know, would like to know more about what happened to that bit of evidence. Um, the search lasted for three weeks. Colette's parents uh, offered at first a $5,000 reward, later increased that reward to $10,000. Unfortunately, there was no sign of Colette. You know, um, there was no sign of this car. Her mom you know, didn't get a license plate, but why would you think to get a license plate of a car just near the side of the road? I mean, you're not looking for your daughter to be gone. You're expecting that she would either be there or she's going to be at a friend's house or maybe the band leader was running a little bit late. I don't think you're thinking as you drive down the road, I have to make sure that every car that I see, you know, I, I get a detailed description of what they look like. Right. Um, yeah, I don't think you would, especially, and, and you're already, you're panicked. So when you're in that state of panic, how much are you focused on detail sometimes, right? So, uh, yeah, that's, it's a hard, it's just hard. It's, it would be really hard to think that you're going to canvas every detail like that. Yeah, I just, I feel for this family and their loss. Before her remains would be discovered, five more girls would be murdered or go missing from South Houston, Galveston area. But they would not be the only missing girls murdered in the North Houston area. So I think what's important as we talk about this is when you look at this area, again, you can't put on those blinders and say, let's just think about that. Let's just think about, you know, Galveston and Alvin these towns are close to Houston. You have many roads that access into them. You have uh, Highway 6, you have Highway 3, you have I-45, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of access into this area that could have been, people could have come from anywhere. You know, and the question about Colette that I think you had was, was this somebody stalking her? Mm -hmm. Or could it be somebody she knew? I think was one of my bigger questions too. Um, just because it does seem like they had a routine in place, right? So is it somebody who had been in the area and saw the opportunity because they had been watching for maybe weeks, you know, to see their schedule? 
I always look at it as, you know, that it was just that crime of opportunity. Somebody driving down Highway 6 notices they're standing there or notices they're walking toward the friend's house and, you know, decides that there's nowhere else around. You can see down that road, see other cars coming and just makes a, a momentary decision. And was it, was it one person or more than one person who might have possibly grabbed her? Yeah, I, I guess that's the, the questions that we have and we're trying to find answers for, um, you know, or, you know, just for their family too to know. I, I, I still have a hard time thinking that it's just something random, but I'm not taking it off the table. I tend to think that it was just something random. So when... next, it seems like we have that ties into this case very easily is the disappearance of Gloria Gonzalez, who disappeared on October 28th, 1971. Right. And the reason for that is because their bodies are found together. Yes. But first a little bit on Gloria. Gloria was a 19-year-old grocery store clerk, bookkeeper, you know, which hits home with us. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we definitely work in that field, so we know, you know, a lot of people um, who work in that field. Very little else is known about her disappearance. There is some talk that she was on vacation shortly before that and then um may have come back but it, there's just not a whole lot else out there about gloria it is known that she was reported missing by her roommate and then in november of 1971 a treasure hunter discovered the remains of gloria gonzalez at addicts reservoir when police were out there looking and gathering her remains they took them into the laboratory to be examined and, and for an autopsy. The um, pathologist performing the autopsy found that some of the remains, particularly some teeth, did not actually belong to Gloria. And so the police then went back out to Attic's Reservoir to see what they could possibly find. And when they went back out, they did discover more remains. and. On one of those remains was actually a peace ring on um, and they knew that Colette Wilson was wearing a peace ring when she disappeared. So police at that point in time were relatively positive that they had found the remains of Colette Wilson. They called her father to the scene. Her father was a dentist and he was the one who had performed all dental work on Colette and so when he was called out to the scene he was actually the one who identified his daughter's bones. And I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. I just can't. A total devastation of, of knowing that that's what you were doing. When Colette went missing she of course was wearing the peace ring, a Mickey Mouse shirt. Um, when her body was found, the shirt was not found. Um, no clothing at that time was actually found there that belonged to her. Um, but there was a red sweater that was found. And there's no talk ever about, did the red sweater belong to one of these victims? Was it tested? Is it still available for testing? Can it possibly be looked at? And so I think as, as we're looking at this, we're 
kind of asking those questions. Is it possible that there's something out there that can be looked at? Right. And I think one note here is when they found uh, Colette and Gloria, they were to believe to be nude. Mm -hmm. There was no clothes found on them, and some of the other girls going missing at this time were clothed when they were mm -hmm. found. So, um, you know, I don't know. If, I guess they're trying not to tie them into being related, I guess, based kind of on that piece of information. Um, what, you know, I don't know. I think Gloria Gonzalez and Colette, you have to say that these two were murdered by the same person. You know, I, you know, it sounds incredibly disturbing to think about it, but I think that whoever killed them, whoever killed went back. Colette went back, mm -hmm. went back to this area, kind of reliving that moment. moment yeah. You know, it's that, that fetish of, revisiting the bodies right mm -hmm. so um and we hear about that often in a lot of cases where the perpetrators do that so after their bodies are discovered gloria gonzalez's cause of death was that she was beaten and strangled she was strangled with a two foot long piece of rope wrapped around her neck with a four inch piece of wood this would be considered a garrote um again the question goes out to law enforcement when you're talking about somebody strangling somebody with a rope like that and a garrote nowadays dna testing can look at the possibility of where there are knots or, or where it was roped around you know were skin cells there are they present still to this day is there a possibility that we could give these families answers is that rope available to test? Right. Um, it would be amazing if it could be. You know, it could be the answers that their families are looking for. It could be in that one piece of evidence, um, which I think is what brings us to doing this sometimes, is just that hope, I guess, for them, you know? Um, I think one thing to note is that the officer what was his name um kern officer kern he was sheriff kern the sheriff yeah. kern right he did bring in other law enforcement agencies you know trying to solve these because he did promise to have an arrest in this um so he was actually reaching out to agencies in the surrounding areas which i think is one thing people don't believe they were doing at that time but they were yeah, I think we may see that in other cases where maybe law enforcement didn't work with other law enforcement agencies. But in this case, you know, at least what we've been able to discover is that Sheriff Kern got many of these law enforcement agencies from the surrounding counties and towns together to share information, to talk about what was out there. And not just the surrounding towns going north going south of houston which would have included galveston owl and all of that area but he looked north too right and uh one thing that i would say about sheriff kearns is that he actually promised that there would be a rare arrest in this case within weeks and i think unfortunately don't make those promises to families right. you know that's that's 
devastating that we're looking at 40 years later and there really are very little answers. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to talk about what answers there were there, what suspects there were. Um, he did have several suspects. Um, there were two different suspects that were arrested and there was an investigation into both of them and they were eventually ruled out. Um, one of them was a suspect who was known to expose himself to women on buses. Another suspect was that a man had come forward and said that his buddy had told him that he had done this. They actually brought that person back from the Chicago area and uh, eventually his buddy confessed that he had made that up, um, which that's horrible to, to do to somebody to have them tied to these horrific crimes. Um, and so in that case, we will not use that gentleman's name in this podcast. I think that, you know, he deserves that anonymity. But the last suspect that we're going to talk about here in just a minute is going to be that police made an arrest um, in another murder case. And they felt like there were enough similarities that they started to investigate this case. Thanks for joining us today. Listen to our next episode to find out more on the suspects in Colette and Gloria's murders and more on why these cases remain unsolved 50 years later. Don't forget to follow us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. Leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. And please subscribe to us wherever you stream your podcast. We're signing off from our studio in Texas City. Studio, Morgan, that's a fancy name for your laundry room. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs>